0: Hey guys, welcome back to Typically Hazardous. This is Hank Fortner, and I am today giving you another interview, or maybe this is the first interview you've listened to, but this is an interview with a great and awesome friend of mine's father. So this guy's a friend of mine, but it's his dad, and his name is Frank Sinatra. He's the founder of a streetwear brand called Stussy, that is about a 33-year-old streetwear brand that has survived the test of time in many ways. but. He is an incredible father, he's an incredible businessman, he's an incredible friend, leader, all of those things. But what amazes me about a guy like Frank is the way that he's able to balance all of those things and keep his life alive and together and vibrant, and he has lived such an incredible life that has matched both the creative work of creating and the creative work of a family and the... Typically, hazardous work of entrepreneurialism and starting a company. And so, in this interview, what you're going to hear is you're going to hear Frank talk about being a dad. He's going to talk about his faith and his spiritual journey, which is incredible, by the way. It's about three quarters of the way through. You're going to hear him talk about being a husband. You're going to hear him talking about starting a business and what it's like to lead a company and what it's like to be in that place. And so much of it is applicable for me in my life for where I am. And I hope it's applicable to you. I know it's applicable to. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey and wherever you are, even in your leadership journey or in your business career journey, or maybe you're in fashion and you're like, hey, this is a insight from one of the greats. So it's an incredible interview, so I can't wait for you to hear this, and I know you're going to love it. It's a long interview, so if you have to break it up into pieces or if you have to skip through, just know that we go through category by category. But it's my longest interview I've ever done, but it was just gold, so you'll see it's really, really good stuff. I'm, I admire Frank so much and I'm super excited for you to hear his story. So check it out. This is our, our podcast dialogue with Frank. Frank, how are you doing this morning? I'm fine, thank you, Hank. Nice to have you here in studio. Yes, in the Sinatra studio. It's uh, yes, fantastic. Uh, I wanna start out with just a couple of questions just to getting to know Frank a little bit. I'm sure you've done a lot of these before. Um, what does a good day look like for Frank? I,
1: I'm a creature of habit. So uh, I also like to control my environment and a good day starts with a quiet time with a cup of coffee, my computer, maybe a Bible verse, certainly the stock market going up. Then Guapo, my Chihuahua, waits long enough for me to finish my coffee and my, my morning emails before he demands his walk. A good day has a cool morning. I come home to my wife who's very happily involved with her morning time. I go get my cappuccino, and then I have a nice sunny day, maybe with a little surf, no surprises. Or I go to work to find that my son is making me amazing amounts of money.
0: (laughs) That's great. What is a bad day? Come home fulfilled. Yeah, great. What does a bad day look like for Frank?
1: The opposite of that. Of everything not going according to script.
0: Yeah. Are you a guy who likes crisis or doesn't like crisis?
1: I don't like crisis.
0: Are you, are you, do you thrive in crisis
1: or do you feel like you... Um, crisis does keep one from being bored, but I'll choose some degree of boredom and the search for entertainment over crisis.
0: Nice, nice. Uh, what makes a person, or what's, what makes you respect a person? Like what, what type of people do you respect? In um,
1: probably the best attribute is discipline. Um, Then, honesty, Mm -hmm. Uh, a natural humility. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a humbleness, but a humility.
0: Sure. What does discipline look like?
1: Discipline means that they control their own life, their future, their relationship with others. In a way, that means that they understand the trade-offs between self-serving indulgence and the burden you place on others.
0: Got it. What about humility? What's a humble person?
1: A humble person is one that doesn't think the sun revolves around them, that realizes that they're a creature of God as everybody else, and that everybody has Mm -hmm. a reason for being and -hmm. should be respected for who they are.
0: Nice. So there's people in the world. So like, who? can you give me examples of people you respect? People you're like, I really respect these guys or this person or...
1: I respect a lot of people. Okay. I mean so if I'm going to call one person out, yeah. you know, is it going to be like wow, this person um, said something or did something and sure. I really would want to think long and hard about yeah. who that name is and why. But we all know people <laughs> sure. that aren't arrogant that that really are aware mm-hmm. we you know, they don't go through life unconscious to their surroundings and to the needs of others.
0: Yep, so you're more of a, you'll respect a person that's like over the long haul, proves these kind of characteristics, these kind of qualities?
1: Well, long haul is obviously the final proof, Mm -hmm. but even on a first meeting, um, you can tell the nature of people by what they're focused on, by how they behave, by how they talk to you, by who they talk to. Yep. That you could see. So, you know, I'd love to give everyone the impression that I'm very open-minded and never make snap judgments. But I believe in making judgments throughout the day and throughout my life. And I changed the judgment based on changing facts. Mm-hmm. But I think when you meet a person, you kind of get a sense of who you're dealing with.
0: Yeah. Did you, did you always have that kind of that instinct or did that grow over time?
1: Oh, I think my willingness to accept my intuition grew over time
0: how did you how did you develop that
1: by meeting a lot of jerks
0: and and being wrong I mean did you develop that by being wrong or did you develop that by what like, does sort wrong
1: of... mean I mean it, <laughs> okay. it, it's more as if you are in a position of leadership mm-hmm. if you're um, always being um, challenged or confronted or meeting people a number of people who recognize you and want to have a piece of your day Um, you learn to assess what impact will I have what's the meaning of this exchange how much time should I allocate right when I was young I had a lot of time and I didn't have a lot of people interacting with me through the day so you could as you call make mistakes Mm -hmm. waste time not have the impact with your time, mm-hmm. but as you get busier, more involved with family and business, um, as you become more um, demanded, time demanded by others, you have to make these selections, or other people are going to end up controlling your day.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. All right, so we're going to go through like just a couple of things that I think are m- m- things that I think are most interesting about your life. Uh, Where did you grow up?
1: In Hacienda Heights, California. How was that? What was uh, that Whittier. like? Very um very suburban, slow, um not a lot of activity like you'd find in the inner city. Uh-huh. uh it was that was nineteen fifty three, I was born, lived in Hacienda Heights starting in fifty five. Not a lot of people, not a lot of celebrity. Sure. Not no TV back then. A little wow. radio.
0: Well, wow. and you're like a million miles from Hollywood at that point. Well,
1: that's 40 miles from Hollywood. But I didn't know what Hollywood was. I mean, nobody yeah. cared. Right. Modest family. Very modest family.
0: Yep. What do you guys do for fun?
1: Well, growing up, I played sports in school. When I turned 13, I started surfing. Um, we really didn't do things that I would call. Um, fun by today's standards, it'd be it. It just would not seem like that's fun. But living life was fun. You know, my parents. We never took vacations. So once in a while, a neighbor would take me along to water ski at the Colorado River, three, four times in my youth. And um, when I got older, a neighbor, different neighbor, took me surfing, camping at San Leo a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. Wonderful fun.
0: Who taught you to surf?
1: Uh, I taught myself you just dove into the water short board long board back then Hank there were only long boards My first okay. board was a used board. I think I bought for $20. It was we used to call them a log They were just okay. heavy monsters. Just I just made out of
0: plywood. I mean no, but they were, they
1: were it was foam and fiberglass but it was so poorly constructed so heavy it weighed 40 pounds jeez and there was no performance shape to it. It was just a flat surfboard. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, 13 years old, I couldn't even pick it up. I'm dragging it down the stairs. And when you go to ride it, I mean, you could jump up and down on a rail and it wouldn't turn. So <laughs> it was just a log. Yeah. Right? right. That, and so I rode that for a few years till I got enough money to buy another board. Um, this The pace of learning back then was much slower because you didn't have the resources. Right. You didn't have a, a a piece of equipment that you could really um you know develop a sense of what cause and effect is as you surf.
0: Right, right. What do you like about surfing?
1: I never really thought about it, but now I could tell you that I like being out in the ocean, um being in the sun, feeling the air, seeing the wildlife. Yeah. And just acknowledging that it's wonderful to be alive mm-hmm. that I'm not somewhere where the elements and the people conspiring against me. Back when I was young, all I cared about was getting good at surfing. So I'd, I'd, I think that if you'd asked me back then, I'd say, why do I like surfing? I like surfing because that's what I do. Yeah. You know, sure. and I want to get better. It was just you. Well, did you have
0: surfing heroes? I mean, back then, did you know about Laird Hamilton or.
1: Laird wasn't around then.
0: Not yet. No. I mean, so this is pre. This Who is... were the surfing heroes? I mean, was, was there
1: a. There wasn't a big network that hadn't even started surfing magazine. Surfer magazine started wow. right around that time.
0: So, was there like a guy in the neighborhood where it's like, oh, that. that There's you know.
1: always a surfing. Let's not say hero, but let's just okay. say there's the best surfer in high school, Okay. right? And then yep. there's the best surfer that you see at a break, Got that it. you see regular. Yep. Um, and then as the magazine culture came out, you began to see names appear over and over again of guys that were, um, you know, the stars of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Corky Carroll was the easy name to remember, right? But he was the competitor, not necessarily the soul surfer that we would rather be. Believe in, and there was a lot of those guys. But I'm I'm at a loss to really come up with their names. Sure. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. Back then. Then there was always big wave legends like Greg Knoll. Mm-hmm.
0: So then transitioning, you grew up Hacienda Heights. You go to, where'd you go to college? Cal State Fullerton. Cal State Fullerton, and majored in accounting and business. Cool. Then what'd you do from there?
1: Got a job as a CPA at Arthur Young and Company. What'd you think of that? Well, to um, i got to fill in your rather shallow question here. Okay. Okay, because <laughs> okay, I'll take it. from the time I was 12, my uncle and my father, both of whom were very smart men that never had much opportunity in life, and had started their own business in the clothing business. But my uncle and my father would tell me that the thing to be was a corporate lawyer because it was just evolving. Corporations, securities law... The growth of of the conglomerate were just taking place, and corporate law seemed like the kind of job where you were um, much needed, much respected, and the future was just rosy, and a professional. So back then, a professional was very important. So I was told from early on, gee, corporate law is what I want to do. I had no idea what a lawyer did, not a corporate lawyer did, had no idea. But whenever I'd go to high school counseling and so forth, they'd say, well, what do you like? I want to be a corporate lawyer. Well, then you need to become a political science major. Mm -hmm. So I started college, junior college, as a political science major, only to find out that, gosh, this is kind of not very exciting. And I learned enough to find that um, corporate lawyers, once you get out of school, you want to be something more than a history major or a political science major and since you're in a corporate environment, that this thing called a CPA is a helpful um, asset to your resume. So why bother getting an English major or a political science major? I became a CPA in college. I took accounting courses to become one. When I graduated, I realized along the way that you to become a CPA, you have to have a couple of years of practice experience. You have to work for a firm that does auditing. The issue being, do you do that after law school or before? And I chose before. Once I started as a CPA, um, I worked with corporate lawyers, and I found out I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I stayed a CPA. You didn't want to do it because it looked boring, because it looked like it, it's, not something Corporate that law you is, personally? is very formulaic. Uh, a lot of the security filings and a lot of the mm-hmm. work are very formulaic. They worked extremely hard. Um, and I felt like, you know, I didn't know what, what anything in business was going to be till I started as CPA. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, gee, I probably don't want to be a professional working at somebody else's company. I want to have my own company. So I stayed a CPA. And you had that sense.
0: What, when was that? When did that first thought cross your
1: mind? Like, Hey, I want, I want to have
0: my own company. I don't think I want to.
1: Well, a couple of years into being a CPA, uh, working at. The behest of others who may or may not appreciate what you do as much yep. and working in an organization where you are valued for how many hours you turn out that are billable mm-hmm. I realized that, um, that that that's a tough grind I also felt as if um, I had a certain intuitive sense about decisions in business and understanding big picture and I really was uh, Looking for a way to put that to work, mm-hmm. and the owning my own business would be that.
0: Mm-hmm. So then you have that thought as a CPA. What do you What do you do with that? Like in in the job? I mean, if you take me into that moment because there's probably people who go through that thought where they're in yeah, a job. Yeah, yeah, they go, yeah. "I got that feeling. Do I, I talk, stick with the job I, mean, I have? What do I? where do you yeah, go from
1: there?" Exactly. Uh, so this is almost a canned speech because I've talked about it so often, but. The idea is, is that God's not going to bless your move unless you take a step, Mm -hmm. but you want to take well, well guided steps. You want to be thinking the whole time you're preparing to take that step. You want to be assessing and most importantly, you want to be meeting other people and talking to them about what they do and how they made their step and looking at what you like, what you're passionate about, what's really going to be something that could be a, a profit-making idea and where your own skill set merges with all that. You want to be saving your money during that time to make sure you've got dry powder when, you're, when your opportunity comes. And you want to have enough of a philosophical exchange with yourself over time so that when you see something intriguing opportunistic and exciting that you're ready to go so my 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 suggestion to to everybody as with me was you got to kiss a lot of frogs to meet a prince Mm -hmm. get started fast get started Mm -hmm. early don't necessarily commit don't go in with both feet get started doing what get started
0: kind of exploring learning that
1: sort of thing or get started exploring learning with what products did you start a lot Any of, companies that didn't work? I, I got involved with some companies that didn't work. They were bad management situations, and I didn't put money in. I was a consultant. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about the fact that you know you don't want to be unequally yoked. You, you want to have a partner that is like-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to pick your partner carefully for their skill set. Mm-hmm. But my point is more... Um, almost like if you were investing in the stock market but not putting money in, but you actually pick a stock, say I put a hundred dollars in there now, how is that gonna do? Even without putting hundred dollars in. So you look at businesses, you meet people mm-hmm. and you talk to them about what is your business? How what does the day mean? What what's the capital like? What's the what's the, the uh the, the thing that makes you successful, makes you Excel uh, amongst others in the same business. You know, all that makes sense. It, you're going to learn more without doing anything if you do something more than have a shallow conversation of, "Oh, that's cool."
0: Yeah, it's just you, you have to. You got to be thirsty. You got to be thirsty. Constantly...
1: And you don't have to be obnoxious, but you got to show a genuine interest and enough enough knowledge, general even, mm-hmm. to. In, to be intriguing to the person you're trying to suck the blood out of. Yeah, right. And you'll find most entrepreneurs, if they come across a bright-eyed, enthusiastic, serious, engaged person who wants to know, doesn't just want you to give them a job, Right. then you're going to answer questions happily. Yeah. Every businessman loves to talk about his business. Yeah, if you, totally. you want to make a friend out of a businessman, Ask him intelligent questions about his business, and you can't shut him up.
0: Yeah. So, so, but that sounds like more work. I mean, that, in in that sense, is like, I think some some people go through the process of going, man, I want to keep working for the man. I want to have my own business. It is work, it, but it's it, it sounds like more work than being an employee. Absolutely, right? it's like the but old adage. Do you of, think
1: starting a business isn't work? No, it it's, sounds like a if lot. you don't want to work, don't start a business. Right. Go to work for the government. Yeah. Totally. Okay. If you don't want to work, but right. if you really want to have an independence that comes from owning your own business. Be prepared to commit your life to it. Make sure your family's on board cuz I can assure you that you're going to be so deep in. If you're not 100% excited about this thing, you're going to regret it every day of your life. Yeah. And yes it is. It's you know it's a it is work to pull yourself up by bootstraps. Mm-hmm. It's more work than getting a job at the post office. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's just going to cost you Make that decision. It's life. not a problem. Yeah, sure. If you choose, hey, quality of life to me is knowing I got a job. Right. With set hours. At the end of my schedule, I punch the clock and I go home and I get to do what I want to do with my family or with my hobby or with my activity. And I'm not going to obsess over the fact that I'm not really getting ahead as fast as I would if I had my own business or I'm still working for some man somewhere and I'm right. not my own boss. Right. Great. You're a lucky person. Yeah. Because you're going to work to 65, retire on Social Security, and have had a good life. Yeah. Much more predictable than if you start your own business.
0: Yeah, totally. So do you have that feeling, that thought, two years into being CPA? Wh- how many years was it from that Six moment? Six
1: more. Six more. Yeah, so Before you
0: launched or before you quit? Before I quit. Okay.
1: So um, let's say I became a CPA in 1979. And I began STUCI in 1980, 81. Um, very small. My own money. My partner Sean had no money, but he had great ideas, and it was started out a very small step. Five thousand dollars. Some, you know, a bunch of my time for free. Uh, the company's first year sales in 1981 were twenty-nine thousand uh, dollars. We were learning what we didn't know, and. And really had no idea about its potential. Mm-hmm. Sean and I thought that if we both made thirty dollars to $50,000 salary for, ne- for the next five years, that was a success. Um, and I was working two jobs. So this was my MBA. Mm-hmm. And I was learning about an industry and learning about the potential for the, the apparel business to, to make money. How much, where, how, right. what's it take to do it?
0: And you uh, had your father and uncle were in the.
1: Well, they made, they made uniforms for a uniform shop that sold motorcycle breeches to the Ohio Patrol. Oh, it wow. didn't really apply to my business. Sure,
0: but was there anything there? Anything transfer, any knowledge, any business, any, even like vendors, thoughts, ideas, anything None. like that? None.
1: None. My sure. father helped me get an embroidered patch made once. Because we were having problems getting an embroidery <laughs> patch made. Got it. He made a couple of samples for us. Yeah. Beyond that, it's a whole different world.
0: Yeah, yeah. So then you go from to the launch. Did you expect it to be? Was a this launch. when you said like, "Hey, I want to"?
1: It wasn't a launch. Oh, wasn't it? it? Was it was sort of a creep. Okay. 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 It, that's what I'm saying to you. That you know, you some businesses know going in size of the market. What it takes to achieve your goal, what timeframes involved, can you or can you not raise money, what are the steps, Mm -hmm. right? Open a retail store, open a restaurant, start Google. Mm -hmm. They all have different formulas, but they're a little more identified than what I was going into back then because I had no idea how big we could get, where we would sell, what we would sell. How many people would buy it? Would we make money? I had no idea how much money it would take. I had no idea about anything. It hadn't been done by us.
0: What were some of the hardest things to learn along the way?
1: Ultimately, it all comes down to managing people. I I had to work very hard to um, save every dollar we made. Because every dollar had to go back into manufacturing the next season's inventory. A little bit larger volume means you need a little bit more money. But along the way, everybody involved with the company who's not involved with coming up with the money to do it wants to spend it. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're managing expectations. You're deciding what's, what's the priority, what's relevant, where it's best spent. And and this is nothing technical, right? We're not even talking about sampling or design or yeah, or style or distribution or or trade shows or marketing. Just the
0: human expectation element. What was learning that like, or what was it learn? What was it like to learn to manage people? Because had you done that in the previous job? No, or that was a brand. I was a
1: manager. I was a principal. I managed people, but they were self starters in a professional industry, Mm -hmm. so they all had common skill sets and common expectations.
0: Yeah, what was it like to learn to manage people in sort of the garment business, the fashion industry?
1: Well, you never stop learning about how to manage people. And I I don't really like using the word manage people as much as manage expectations and anticipate problems. But, you know, you got to learn that... Um, that the best way to be a good leader is to know where you want to go and what people should be doing to get you there and to make sure that either they respect that vision and that rollout plan, or they don't come along Mm
2: -hmm.
1: along the way, everybody develops their own ideas of how things should be run and what the, what their role should be. And if that's not consistent with yours and you let them go ahead, they poison the well. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying to you that the hardest thing was understanding that to get where we wanted to go as a business, I had to make a lot of people conform mm-hmm. to what needed to be done. Yeah, When you're small and hungry as a business and everything is you and one person – it's easier. Mm-hmm. Then when you become larger, they become a little more separated from, from core management and they think there's money around, mm-hmm. it becomes harder.
0: Yep. Did you have any did you have any failures along the way in that process? Oh,
1: well, you have to define fail. You know, so th- th- there is missed opportunity, maybe. Uh-huh. Um there were small mistakes. Yeah, sure. But I think that one of the things that characterized my style and one of the things that people find very abrasive about me is that I want to control my environment. And in controlling my environment, I limit the failures. But I also am perceived to be squashing initiative, to be tamping down creativity, Mm -hmm. to be too dictatorial, too demanding, when none of that in my mind is true. I'm really just trying to ensure success, Mm -hmm. but everybody else wants to feel as if, you know, dude, like, give me a break, Mm -hmm. but if I give you a break, we will have a failure.
0: And you're ensuring success based on analytical data, or you're ensuring success based on your instinct goes, if we don't do this, this will fail, or if we do this, does that make sense? Like what's informing that well, instinct it's, of that control?
1: It's, it, in all businesses in, in life, it's all the same. It's risk analysis. Mm-hmm. It's, it's understanding the time horizon for performance, the financial requirements for performance, and the capability of the people involved to accomplish your goal. And I deliberately wasted money on projects to let other people the design side feel as if they got a chance to fulfill a dream or to to do something novel but a lot of times going in I could see this is going to fail mm-hmm. there's just there's no market demand for what they wanted to do yeah. or they didn't have the skill set to get it done. So what blinds a person to
0: feel like? Because they probably didn't go, this is
1: going to fail. They were just going, this is my um, idea. This is what I want to do. In the How,
0: what was the clarity you had that they didn't?
1: I'm not creative. I don't have that emotional attachment Got of it. creativity.
0: And so that's what get you think, like when a person's uh, doing something, his eyeballs deep into a project, and, and you can, from the objectively, you look at it and go, that's not going to work. But they're committed to it. Is it because they are emotionally attached to the idea and not... It's feasibility in the marketplace? Is that the...
1: Well, most successful companies in our space, in fashion, have to have two elements working together as one. Mm -hmm. You have to have the creative process and you have to have the business management Mm -hmm. side. They have to respect each other. They have to share. But at some point... You have to understand that if you want to succeed and not have a failure, depending on the size of the company, the creative side has to listen to the business management side. The issue with the creative side, and there's nothing negative about this comment, is that the more creative a person is, the less they have an ability to see reality, the more that their reality is their vision yeah right okay nothing wrong with that right but if you have only vision without execution you have failure okay right and so this vision has to be molded depending on the cost the time frame the goal has to be molded around the realities taking place around you Mm -hmm. and you know this is a delicate balance. This is a delicate walk. Yeah. But if you're going to avoid failure, then you want to be open to vision. You have to be unique. But you also have to understand, well, what's doable in today's environment? And what do we have the capital and the capacity, the infrastructure to accomplish? And put the two together as best you can. Don't just let the vision run wild.
0: Yeah. Did you ever feel like the business said no to a vision that you look back on and go, man, that actually could have worked. Like we stopped it, but that actually could have succeeded, that actually could have.
1: Oh uh, look, our business said no to a lot of things. Um, and that's why we're still here 35 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, most companies um, get caught up with the, um, the success and the um, popularity of their brand and they begin to believe, the companies begin to believe that they're infallible. That none of the none of the product life cycles and brand histories that took place before them ever apply to them. And so they they go in directions that are counterintuitive for who they are in the marketplace, or they forget that size carries with it a certain load of gravity mm-hmm. and they get to a point where gravity wins and they come down like a rock. Yep. So mm-hmm. we said no to a lot of retailers and trends that wanted to take us off in, in areas that would have made us huge, but we didn't have the infrastructure, the discipline to really carry it out for the long term. Mm-hmm. So we said no.
0: Mm-hmm. So what do you feel like is next for SUSE? David. Yeah? David is
1: next for Stussy. Okay. You know, Stussy um, is here today because it's a very sensitive, flexible model. It's It's got a lot of diverse individuals around the world who all like being part of the collective in one form or another. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge feedback loop constantly giving us ideas and... About the um, the things that our partners are seeing and want to do, we in our own way filter that and formulate it into a strategy that is a a unified vision that's not uh, you know here or there out of track right so we today have got more ideas and opportunities in the marketplace than we've ever had due to David, my son, his expanded network of new people Mm -hmm. that are bringing fresh ideas and have a lot of enthusiasm for, for our space Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in prior times. Many of these people might have just started their own company. But it's very difficult now to do that, mm-hmm. to get traction. So we're getting the the opportunity. We're we're blessed with the ability to have really special people want to work with us because we can enable them mm-hmm. to do things they couldn't do on their own.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you say what's next for Stussy, mm-hmm. I would only say we'll see what tomorrow brings. But tomorrow looks very bright.
0: It's great. And David, I've known David as my personal friend, one of my very best friends for the last 10 years, a little over 10 years. And I think when I met David, I think he was 18 years old, I don't have any knowledge that he imagined that he was the next for Stussy. We, our dialogue, our conversations were never about that. When did you know or what, what point in your life as his dad were you like... I'm going to give this company over. I'm going to let David take the reins. When did that trigger for you? When did, was that? Did you always know like when David was young were you always like this, this no. kid's going to run this company, he's going to no, lead no. this David's thing? No.
1: No, David's always been bright. David's always been very good with people. Um he did work for the company when he was maybe 20 in when he was in college a little bit in sales and proclaimed to me, "Yeah, dad, I know what this is all about. You know, I'm kind of over it. I've got other ambitions. And he went off and did some other things. Those other things that he did, the Hollywood years, the software years, um, contributed to his uh, background knowledge. That really made him quite valuable to me because we had uh, the web and e-commerce Um, area of our business starting to become much more influential and important um, because media uh, consumption was changing and the type of media you put in place was important and because David met a lot of people in those years outside of our network that could be helpful. Mm -hmm. So after he'd run his course experimenting in his own way with his life and his business taking those small steps He he recognized that, gosh, my dad could really use my help, which was true, and came back. uh, His first mission was to get our website, uh, our social media, our media content, and our e-commerce on a solid track. Mm -hmm.
0: And along the way, were you thinking – David's going to be the best web developer I ever had? Are you thinking he's going to be great at this branding stuff? Or was there a thought in the back of your mind, this is the gateway? Did you know he had both the, the creative and project management skills as well as the leadership stuff? Or was that fresh? Did that sort of Was there anything that surprised you in that process?
1: Everything surprised me. Because I knew David was a capable young man at things that he wanted to do. But he had a lot of management skills to learn and he had a lot of practical um, prioritization skills to learn and he'd never been tested so he basically did it all himself he had to dig into projects he had to take the right size bite Mm -hmm. in the right order and devote resources and his time to conquer that dragon and then move on to the next one and it was watching him do that the the determination the commitment of time the the tenacity the discipline that began to give me insights into what he was capable of he had a lot of years of maturing ahead of him he had to learn about people that people don't always do what you want them to do or what they should do that people sometimes speak bigger than they can perform he had to learn that some projects just take more management than you ever mm-hmm. thought you were going to have to do and you can't just spin off into another project.
0: Yeah. Was, working with your son, I mean, that closely with your son, does that cause any... Did that cause friction? Did that cause tension? Did that make you closer? Did that Was
1: that uh, harder or easier? It definitely causes friction. It causes tension. I get to know him a lot better and grew increasingly more proud of him. I tell I tell a bunch of executives, they ask me about transition plans and what's a successful transition plan. And I tell them, have lots of sons. <laughs> and then I say, oh, but don't forget to stay married to the son's mother because he's going to need her backing when you want to kill him. Yeah. Right? And there's times, you see, when you're transitioning a business, I'm on... A certain glide path to retirement. I I know the future based on what my my um, objectives and skill set and um, and vision for the company is. So I'm gliding along this path, saying, "Well, I'm going to come down and then I'm going to land. I'm going to step off the plane and go retire." And in comes your son, who says, "Wait a minute! I want to give this plane gas." I want to change course. And you're looking at him going, but wait a minute, if you do that and screw up, I gotta take the controls and it's not it's not on my glide path. And
0: you're gonna screw my plan up, basically. Big time. Yeah.
1: And and given that that his ideas hadn't yet begun to bear fruit, there weren't obvious successes mm-hmm. involved that you didn't even know mm-hmm. <laughs> what the future had to bear. Mm-hmm. You're you're basically saying, I'm giving up my dream. To go with you, and it could have been premature because you hadn't seen the things that you wanted to see that told you, "Oh, I can put one hundred percent confidence in this." Right. But with David and me, the relationships evolution involved my watching him follow through with things he needed to do, commit to, regardless of the adversity Mm -hmm. that told me that okay, this guy's committed. It's just not hey. I'm doing this today. Right, right. And if it gets tough, I'm out. Right. And likewise, I began to see how much different the modern community was in fashion and in the web-based social media. How products and ideas were being consumed differently Hmm. than my generation. Hmm. And it, it opened up. A whole new world to our business. I remember talking to several people about the debates that Mushia Prada and her husband used to have about a website and how she didn't want to contribute any info to the website about what she was thinking. She didn't want to blog, she didn't want to share because. In sort of the old-fashioned world, it's a very proud, private place. You don't really know what's going mm-hmm. on. These people are icons. They don't want to tell you what they're thinking. But today's world, everybody wants to know the story, the, 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 the connection behind what you're doing. How did you get there? Why did you do it? Who's involved? And, and if you don't share those things, then your idea... Even though it may be a good idea, well executed, it, it lands flat right? because there's no, there's no story behind it. Yeah. So what David brought was that whole sense of world affiliation and story to the thing. And as I saw that evolving along with his executing, it gave me more optimism that regardless of the short-term difficulties and the unknowns – that this really was the future.
0: Wow, that's cool. So, it, you, I mean, that's pretty cool to be, to have this company run for 30 years and then have your son, you get working with your son, and then to say that he's next. For you as a dad, that's gotta be a proud moment, gotta be an important thing. What do you think? You, you have three awesome kids. I like all your kids. Here, I, wanna make,
1: I wanna make one point before we move on. Okay. I have three okay. three awesome sure. kids and my wife. Okay. Is
0: that, I want to move into fatherhood. I want to talk about uh, about Frank. Is as a that dad.
1: one critical element in this transition process? Is that when you give control of a company to somebody, especially if they're not your child, especially if they're not on your team, you you essentially turn over control of the culture. At some point, you have to say it's yours, right? And so many. Incoming executives Don't care about what you thought what you wanted They have from the day. They got involved had an agenda. They just never told you right and they immediately upon getting season the reins They change what you did. Yeah, they bring in people you don't like they go places you with the brand that you never wanted them to They may be all about money or they may be all about their pride and ego But it's a very scary process, especially when it's a seasoned executive because they bring in the team they worked with at the other bad company they Mm -hmm. were at. So you get their history, and and it may not be pretty. Mm -hmm. With my son, I had somebody that I knew cared about the people and the culture and about my wishes and my wife's wishes as much as I did. So it was a much easier decision to say, okay, turn over to him because when when he's fighting with other people in my company – I know he cares about the fight because he cares about the company.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're fighting with him because they want their own way, but it doesn't serve the company.
0: Yeah, and you know he what he's fighting for in a room is probably what you would fight for.
1: Exactly. I know yeah. he would do what I would do. They're going to tell me all kinds of stories that don't make sense right. to try to throw me off the track. Right, right. But I'm saying bringing your blood in, somebody who you know and love and get along with and understand makes that process easier because you know there's no game is being played. You know there's no right. subversion. Yep. You know, no, no. They're... I know these people. They're not somebody a headhunter brought in.
0: Yeah, totally. So it's
1: a very important fact to this transition.
0: Yeah, it's cool. And
1: good idea for other people to know because until they've seen other companies transition bring in outside executives, they don't know how quickly this yeah. goes back. You're
0: giving the whole thing over at that point.
1: We have to. At some point, you have to give it over. It's yep. not a good transition. Yeah. And once they're there... They can destroy your culture in a year.
0: Yep. Wow. So, okay, so you got three awesome kids. What do you think your kids would say
1: about you? Gosh, I don't really think about it. (laughs) Otherwise, I probably would behave differently. Okay. (laughs) But um, the obvious things are uh, my dad is really headstrong in what he believes. Um, my dad is very predictable in his behavior. Uh-huh. My dad is very principled. Yep. Did I say that the first time? No. Nope. Um, my dad loves God and his family. And my dad is not normal and probably crazy.
0: <laughs> okay. All those, fit, all those fit beautifully, beautifully together. When you, what was your dad like?
1: My dad was wonderful. Now my dad grew up during the Depression. My dad was born in 1922 in New York to an immigrant family. His mother died when he was four. Hmm. He had a sister and two brothers that were older than him, one brother younger. He grew up in the Bowery, and his mother re- his father remarried um, when he was five or six. And his stepmother hated the children and loved her own children. And when his father died at 10 or 12, his he and his siblings got thrown out. So they didn't have much school, fifth grade. Uh, they didn't have much sense of um, security. Mm-hmm. And they had to make their way in the world, um, into the depression, right? So my father, I think, was much smarter than I ever was, but never had a chance to develop it. Hmm. Um, but he made his way in the world along with his family. It was back then immigrants, family taking care of your family was everything because that's all you had. Yeah, you know, there wasn't social support programs.
0: Right, and so, even and you a felt like very tight family. Was that true even as he? Raised you, and as he raised your siblings, as he brought you always into the saw, world? You
1: always saw. He, well, my father, when he started his business, it was with his brother, and he brought his sister in. Yeah. They all worked together.
0: Wow. What kind, what kind of dad was he to you?
1: He was very busy trying to support the family, but he always came home at night and was always there. He wasn't real talkative. But he was very accepting. One thing I know about my father and my mother is that I was loved, I was accepted, I was approved of, and everything else was on my own.
0: Yeah Did did you take any of that experience of being the way that your dad was a dad to you that you translated as your father?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, Carol and I both um, care more about our kids than we care about ourselves. So we're not trying to mold our kids into something that would lead to more approval of us by the outside world and our friends. Mm-hmm. We're accepting, we're approving, we're loving, we give security and they're on their own. Yeah, what what most
0: surprised you about being a dad?
1: Uh how easy it is if it's done right. Okay. If you if you did you ever do it wrong? Uh I could have, but my wife wouldn't let me. <laughs> okay. But if you devote yourself, if you truly in your heart care more about your kids than you care about yourself, then regardless of the circumstances of life and even the mistakes you met, make, your kids will get it. They will see it and they will respect it and they will, will model it. If you do everything perfect, but you're not there for them. You don't really care. You're just doing it. They'll see it. They won't respect it. They won't model it. And they'll have a big empty spot in their life. Because kids will be just fine if they know that they're loved and they know that they're um, accepted and they know that they're wanted and they know that you like them. Yep. They'll be just fine. If they are spending their days... Trying to in some way make you like them, impress you, fill that hole—it's never going to work, mm-hmm. and they're going to be making disastrous decisions the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. So my point is, what I learned about being fathers is it's quite easy if you pay attention to the basics. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I don't really know what—I don't really know what a father should do other than that, right? <laughs>
0: right? Just, yeah. You,
1: the point sure. is, like you said to me, you know, Frank. Gosh, if you're going to start a business and you're going to ask all these questions of all these people about all these things, that's a lot of work. Yes, but it's going to be ultimately lead to success. So you could not ask those questions. You could not put that work in. You could run off with a half-brained idea and waste all your money and be in a deep pit and wonder, how did I get here? Or you could put the work in advance and the likelihood of success will be greater. Yeah. Same thing with children and parenthood. You could put the work in, even if you don't know what you're doing. Put the work in early, dedicate yourself, think about everything, be a part of their lives. Your likelihood of success will be great. Yeah. Or you could read a few books, try to go about your own life, you know, and just sort of fit that in the parenting thing, and uh, it most likely will be a disaster. Yeah.
0: <laughs> when did you meet Carol?
1: The year. Yeah. 81, I think.
0: 81. Where did you meet
1: her? Carol was introduced to me by a friend of mine at work. She came out from Wisconsin to visit my friend for a week, and she set us up on a blind date. What was your
0: first thought when you saw Carol? Wow. What was your first thought when you, your first conversation, do you remember what it was about?
1: I remember I tried to get her attention, and it was very hard.
0: Oh yeah, and uh-huh. it was, and you probably weren't used to that, right? I mean,
1: I wasn't used to that.
0: And so, what did that make you think? I better try harder. Yeah, and were you used to trying harder? I mean, was she really the first girl that you were like?
1: Yes, she's I the only it. first girl I ever cared about. So I tried harder.
0: Yeah, how long did you have to try? One night. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then you got her attention, and you I got her attention. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when you got it, once you got her attention, what did you guys do?
1: We uh, got to know each other We dated How long? Well She had to go back to Wisconsin But within six months Or a year We were married Six months or a year Which one? I think it was a year A year and you- She had to come back from Wisconsin Then we had to date some more Got it And then you got married We got married Yep
0: what, How'd you propose?
1: Not like you <laughs> Okay <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that creative Okay Okay How'd you propose? What'd you do? I, I don't really want to get into that. Okay. It, it's one of those failures okay. that worked out. Okay. All right? Got it. Got it. You did you- I, Let me just say that you've heard from me that I'm not really creative. Okay. Okay? I, I don't really, I, I didn't really have a good background in these matters. Okay. But I got the job done. Cool. Yeah. I mean,
0: and that's what matters, right? Execution. Well,
1: to me, yes. To my wife, <laughs> okay. she would have preferred a little bit more. <laughs> okay.
0: Got it. And you, how long were you married until you started having kids?
1: Uh, we were married, probably it was our second year of marriage when we okay. had our first daughter.
0: What was most surprising about being a husband?
1: Ooh, before father? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of yourself needs to change? To okay. be a husband.
0: And like what? Like everything. <laughs> everything. Everything. Like, can you give me an example? I mean...
1: Well, especially a man who was 28, had pretty much been independent his whole life, wasn't a social animal, was very driven to get ahead, and didn't really stop to think about everybody else along the way. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, I've got somebody who I'm thinking about every day. And I my sensitivity meter was very low. Mm-hmm. So we needed to turn it up.
0: Yeah. What was that transition like? Painful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what did you do to get yourself there? I mean,
1: that was... I made a lot of mistakes and I cared enough to learn.
0: Yep. yep. And you lived... So for two years, I mean, was that the whole process, the husband... Transition. When did you feel like, okay, I'm settling into this? No, well, I think I'm kind of figuring out how to be a husband now. I mean, that first transition probably big. No, no, I big. still haven't figured it out. Okay.
1: Okay, but <laughs> okay. look, it wasn't like the day after we were married, all of a sudden I got a pan in the face and it was time to wake up. It right. wasn't like that. Yeah. But, you know, over time, then things that Carol would have expected a husband would know and do mm-hmm. didn't happen. So... She can overlook that disappointment this one time and give me a little hint. And but my problem is I didn't take hints very well. I my sensitivity meter was very low. Okay. So the 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 hints started getting more frequent and a little bolder, and I had to also say wow. And then you're struggling with well, what's right, what's wrong, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Right. Right.
0: Yep. How do you keep a marriage vibrant? I mean, I around you and Carol, you can very much tell you guys are in love. You're for each other. You're with each other a lot. You communicate all the time. How do you keep a marriage vibrant after how long you've been married? 30? 35 years. 35 years. How long do you keep, how do you keep that vibrant and alive?
1: Well, you don't keep any marriage alive if Jesus Christ isn't the center. You have to have a neutral pivot point. Some it's not what Carol wants, it's not what I want, it's not what if Carol's right, it's not if I'm right. It's what does Jesus Christ say. Mm-hmm. So you have to have this neutral point. And if you're not a Christian, then maybe it's you need a common family member who you respect, who you think can be this arbiter of mm-hmm. you know what you should be doing and whether you've gone off the deep end or whether they're demanding too much. But yep. we believe the easiest answer is Jesus Christ controls our marriage.
0: And what does that look like to, for Jesus to... Like, give me a scenario where you go It means go, you care more about Jesus. your
1: wife and your commitment than you do about yourself. Got it. It means that whatever it is that's happening, you don't think of it from the filter of, well, what about me?
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. You think about...
1: What about her? Mm-hmm. What about what he would want me to do?
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. Wow. How did you meet God? Actually...
1: I was drawn to become a Catholic at
0: twelve. Was your family religious at
1: all? No, but being Italian, they were. My mother was Spanish, so there was a Catholic heritage.
0: Okay. Did you go to church on Easter? Did you go to church on No? No, family didn't do anything like that. Remember the first time you ever went to church? I asked my father to drive me to church. He dropped uh, me off. What inspired you? What? What? God. Okay. The Holy Spirit. Really. Yeah. So no, you didn't have like a friend or see a poster or a movie or something you go I'm going to try that. You just at 12 walked up to your dad and said, "Yep. Take me to church."
1: Yeah. I mean, I I go way way back with thoughts of is there a god? Was there a Jesus? What does all that mean? Yeah. But it was a it was a big enough um pull in my thoughts that I wanted to find out. Huh. And, and that was the obvious step.
0: Yeah, and we, he took you to. A, did you
1: say I want to go to he took that me to church? To your Catholic church, and dropped me off at the door.
0: He did. I mean, if he would have taken you to a Mormon church or a Jehovah's Witness or a. I might have gone mosque, there. Mosque, you would have just walked in. He just took you. When he, his definition of church was that Catholic church.
1: Well, it's, you know, come on. I, I was twelve. What do I remember? But <laughs> yeah, I would say sure. that that's where I ended up. Okay. Okay, and I don't think I'd studied up on saying I want to go to this Catholic church. Sure. Right. Okay. So, so he walked in.
0: Went to a mass by yourself?
1: Started catechism somehow. Yeah. I mean, this is all really vague, but went to First Communion, got confirmed, and after about two years decided that this was kind of um, ritualistic and not so meaningful. Mm -hmm.
0: And that was at 14? 14. And so you you just stepped away from it or you just stopped cold?
1: Yeah, and there was not, even though I went to catechism, there was not a lot of true Bible teaching. I really didn't walk away knowing anything Hmm. other than what you do in the routine of First Communion.
0: Yeah, so it just fizzled out for you.
1: Wasn't as important to pull. Mm -hmm.
0: So then from 14 on,
1: what would you do? How long were you... I didn't start going back to church, so I married Carol. Wow. And Carol uh, was also becoming a Christian at the time. Um, she was before me a Christian. And she, through some people that we met, she took care of, a, uh, of an autistic boy for a doctor and his wife who were very active at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And she'd heard about things going on there, and uh we started going. And so that's where I was saved and that's where I learned uh the Bible under Chuck Smith. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really grew my faith.
0: Yeah. What would what what do you feel like I mean that's a big gap. Those it's 14 years from 14 to then 28 if I get my math right. Dark ages. What what during those dark ages did you pray? Did you no. have spiritual conversations with people? No. Did you have Opinions, thoughts on God. No. It was just sort of
1: still had that same lingering question of who was Jesus. Mm-hmm. Is there a God? Mm-hmm. But never doubted it. Just knew nothing about it. I was, I was uh, ignorant.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you started going to church and started being a part of that with Carol, what was it that drew you towards Jesus? What What drew you to him?
1: Oh, he just called me. I mean, I wanted it. Yeah. So I. I had no... You know, I don't know that I can speak for everybody. Sure. But I think that amongst people who aren't believers, but maybe skeptics, I think there's a pride, um, a selfishness that stands in the way of their accepting the notion that there's really is a God and that they need to be accountable to him that they need to find out what he wants for them in their lives there's also a pride of life that keeps people from admitting to others that they believe that there's a god that there were that we were created mm-hmm. that this is a world created
0: yeah did, but did you have did you feel like you had any of that pride or no, you were I, like i, I, I was I, ready I, the minute you
1: were, a lot of people would say i was a I was a prideful person yeah. because I was a very self-assured person. Okay, right. But that didn't stand in the way. I didn't feel that. Yeah. I felt like, no, come on, there is a God. Like look around and gee Jesus, i I hear a lot about this guy. I just I need to find out, did he really exist? What do I what can I find out?
0: Yeah. Did and you that, have any skeptical questions that needed answering? Or no, were you no just sort of like questions. the minute you found somebody who knew Jesus, you were like,
1: No, of course. no, it was the Bible and my pastor. But the fact is, is that the nice thing about Christianity is um, skepticism and investigation is um, is encouraged. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing to hide. Right. And I found that the more I read into all of the New Old Testament, New Testament, the historicity, the the facts behind it, the the extra biblical readings, um, it all the scientific, um, it all clicked. It all works. There was, there was nothing that was such a glaring um, ambiguity or disconnect mm-hmm. that you should question that reality. Yeah. I've never found it to this day. Yeah.
0: So when you you met God and you learned and had this awesome pastor and you were learning things about the scriptures, what uh, did you pray? Did you start praying? Did you start yeah. having? Yeah, of course. What was that like?
1: Um, well, I don't find that. Prayer, for me, is a deep experience any one time. My relationship with God is from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. And I see a bird, and I thank God for the bird. I see my wife, or I see my child, or I, I take a breath, or I have a meal, or I meet somebody great. I mean, it's all... God
0: and it's constant. It sounds it's like constant. A, it's always there.
1: I tell my wife that the sad thing about drinking a glass of wine is that I feel removed from God the minute I drink that wine. Wow, because just a little edge is taken off my consciousness. Hmm. Do
0: you have any spiritual practices?
1: What you mean, like incense? What I don't are you know. Talking about? I
0: mean, any of those things, like what, what like practices, heck? like you do the same thing. I mean, you're a creature of habit. You sit I listen in the morning, to you
1: wake the radio. Up. For 25 years, when Pastor Chuck and all the other pastors were teaching, Mm -hmm. Billy Graham, J. Vernon McGee, I never listened to pop culture music. Mm -hmm. I listened to Bible teaching. Uh, Nothing's more meaningful to me. Unfortunately, once I hear a song once, it's not entertaining to me the second time. (laughs) Okay. Maybe it's background music, maybe after I've had a glass of wine, but without that, I know what's coming next. Yep.
0: Would well, you have a favorite part of the Bible? A favorite scripture verse? Um, you know,
1: I have to tell you, no. It's, no. As a whole, the thing, the, it's a, the whole thing's amazing. Yeah. But he, having having learned about what God wants from us, about what God is telling us about Himself, about the wisdom that's there, I don't need to revisit a particular proverb or psalm or epistle
2: mm-hmm.
1: to, to carry it with me in my heart. I don't even need to memorize those verses because it's a very clear picture. It's right there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's like, the, the, it, you, it's living, right? So I, I like to read certain passages that reaffirm God's love and forgiveness and purpose, mm-hmm. But no, I don't have spiritual practices that give me strength. My strength is in the knowledge that God loves me more than I love my wife and children. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty good.
0: You feel like God has blessed you? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Are you kidding me? Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And you feel like how why why do you think that is?
1: Because he loves me. He blesses everybody. Yeah. The question is are you in a place they used to say in Jude uh, where keep yourself in the love of God.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: okay And what that really means is keep yourself in a place where God can be in a position to bless you. because if you're spinning out of control or preoccupied with life, living like uh, you know uh, living like the world mm-hmm. he's not going to encourage more of that. Mm-hmm. He's not going to bless you with with money and if you're mistreating, the people that he puts into your life, he's not going to put more people in your life that for you to mistreat. Right. So my point is that he blesses everybody. The question is, do you see it? Yeah. Right. Or are you like the guy sliding down the roof towards the cliff and you're praying, God save me. And he catches his pant on a nail and stops and he says, oh, God, never mind. Yeah, right. I don't need you. Yeah, right. Yeah, everything is a blessing.
0: Yeah. Yep. Um, in your life... How do you keep that faith? Like, when you were 14, you had a spiritual experience. 12 when you had a spiritual experience.
1: How do you keep that
0: faith? I, I mean, for you, and not even like the keeping of the faith, <sighs> the keeping of the vibrancy of that faith. Like It sounds to me like you, you sound so, like almost like your connection with God is, has such an ease to it and such a rhythm. I think... Uh, hey, it's not
1: oppressive. You either believe there's a God who's the Lord of your life and has control over the breath you take, or you don't. Do you think you need to be reminded? <laughs> yeah. I think people go, uh, yeah, they get
0: that like cerebrally, but I think people feel that drift. They feel that, whatever that is, that creeping. Like you talked about the well, transition yeah, of yeah. being a husband. The, the you feel love that of selfishness. The, flesh,
1: right. the pride of life. You, you, of course. If you allow yourself, look, you start out by asking me, what, what is the most important trait? In a person. Right. And I said discipline. Okay. Got Same it. thing here. Sure. Just keep
0: yeah, just keep it online.
1: Keep it online. Keep yep. it engaged. Like I said, don't have that glass of wine. And, yeah. And he's there. there have, have that go. glass of wine and he's not. Have a second glass of wine. Right? So it's just it comes down to arrogance versus appreciation. Right. Awareness right. versus unconsciousness. You know, and I'm not saying that you got to go through life whipping yourself, right? And you know, and, uh, and you know, suffering for God. That's sure. not what I'm saying. I'm just sure. saying be aware that you know you're not as special as you think you are. You're not as different from everybody else as you think you are. Right. You're no better than anybody else. Right. You're just a person. Now that doesn't mean I'm going to go around and say, "Oh, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I have no value." Oh, you know. No, but I'm going to just have an awareness that says, you know what, we, we're all here together, and God put us here. Yep. So I really struggle with this notion of, you know, oh, I'm going to go out and find someone to scratch my car. I'm going to blame God. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to trip on a log and break my leg. I'm going to blame God. My business is going to fail. I'm going to blame God. My wife yells at me. I'm going to blame God. Like, at what point do you realize that, no, that's not God? You know, that's his yeah. life. It's a fallen world. Blame right. the devil. Blame Adam, right? Right Don't blame God. So, what? Why do I need to rebuild my faith? Why do I need a you know incense or an experience to, to re, either you got it or you don't, Hank?
0: Yeah, you
1: Maybe know, you hang on to it. It's kind of like it's kind of like you know your responsibility as a man. You you are in charge. Mm-hmm. You have to keep the rules. You have to stay on course. You have to be disciplined. If you do that, then you're not going to go off track. You're not going to be lured away. Right. But it's up to you. Yeah. Now, some people have criticized me for that philosophy and said, gee, you know, you really think highly of yourself. You really don't put the, the gratitude and the, the uh, thankfulness on God saving you. hmm you know, he, you know, he's, he's there. He saves me every day, but it's still, we have free will. He gives us choice. That's the discipline.
0: Yeah. That's great. That's great. This has been awesome, Frank. Lots of great subjects and topics and dialogues. That's it, Hank.
1: I mean, I didn't get to talk about how great I am in business. And...
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, we went pretty far down that road. Anything, okay. Any last things? Anything I missed? Anything you want to say?
1: I've learned from many depositions in court that I don't answer a question like that. Okay. If you have a question, I'll answer it. Otherwise, I just don't ramble on. Hank. Got it. But it's been a delight. Thank it's you. And great. I enjoy sharing. Um, and I hope anybody who listens to this finds something helpful in what great. I said.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Frank. You're very welcome. Much.